the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. How do we approach a loved one with Alzheimer's and other cognitive disorders in a way that affirms their continuing self-identity? Today's guest, Dr. Stephen Post, helps caregivers navigate the challenges of a loved one's cognitive decline. According to Dr. Post, focusing discussion and resources on the dignity of these individuals and the respite needs of their caregivers is vital. Dr. Post is an elected member of the Medical and Scientific Advisory Board of Alzheimer's Disease International and one of only three recipients of the Alzheimer's Association Distinguished Service Award. His newest book is Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. Welcome, Dr. Post. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Joan. It's a delight to be with you. So, Dr. Post, you contend that we are conscious in spite of what our brain may be doing. What do you believe the Alzheimer's journey is like for someone with the diagnosis? I use the term deeply forgetful people in the title of this book, and it's very purposeful because I don't much appreciate the term dementia. It's a strictly negative term, a decline from a former cognitive state, and it divides us from them. It's uh, sort of a, there, but for the grace of God, go I. But in fact, uh, there's a continuum, and everybody has moments of significant forgetfulness in life. I know I do sometimes. I uh, forget where, where I park my car, or even that I have a car that's parked, believe it or not. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> So I, I, I like the deep forgetfulness piece because it's a little less uh, derisive, and it's also a little more, uh, you know, to be frank, mysterious. Uh, and in answer to your question, um, you know, I've never been willing to respond to any person who says, is grandma still there with a no? Because we just can't say. They may have some cognitive uh, deterioration. They may have some effect on their neurology. But underneath that all, uh, in the silence and sometimes in the chaos, you will find that there are these surprising moments of what professionals in the field call paradoxical lucidity where someone kind of comes back into their own and uh, they seem to be with it, know who they are. It may not last very long. It may be stimulated by personalized music or by the Alzheimer's poets in Brooklyn or whomever, but they sort of come back into who they are and they can, they can be uh, somewhat, uh, I like to use the word, rementia. They can be remented a bit. And we need to notice that. We need to observe and we need to be open to those possibilities. Doctor, even if someone doesn't come back to who they are, what what you just described, is there any science that has shown they still experience emotions and have feelings? Maybe not as the person they were, but just as a human? Well, uh, yes, as the person they were and as a human. Look, you know, uh, we put too much emphasis on linear rationality in our Western world. But these individuals still have tremendous uh, emotional capacities. Uh, they have emotional intelligence. Uh, they, uh, they have creativity. Uh, they can appreciate music and art. 
Uh, there are a lot of things that they can do. They can still smell and enjoy the fall leaves. Um, so there's a lot left there. Just because memory has faded doesn't mean that we should respect these individuals less or think less creatively about how we can interact with them. In fact, there's lots of things that we can do, and uh, and we need to realize that. I think that's such a wonderful point because when a loved one or friend or, or someone who's going through this loses the identity that we know, we tend to push that person aside and forget that they're still a human being. Yeah, and we and, and we forget that there will they're they're always there. I mean, I, I take that position firmly. Um, one of my great neurology teachers at the University of Chicago, Sir John Eccles, always said that the human mind, the human consciousness, is more profound than the brain. And you can have a uh, dysfunction in, in a certain part of the brain that lays down short-term memories, uh, the hippocampus, as they say, um, but the person is still there and uh, will occasionally simply beam up in a surprising fashion. So I have all kinds of stories in this book about just those sorts of experiences. And, and uh, um, uh, so we can never say that they're gone, they're a husk, they're a shell, they're, they're dead, and so forth. They've changed, and we have to work a little harder to communicate with them. In fact, a lot of the book talks about how to do that. And don't use open-ended questions. What would you like for breakfast? But you ask, well... Would you like ham and eggs, or would you like post-toasties? So you're always cueing them with your language, and they can oftentimes chime in, whereas if you don't do that, they get defensive and they get more distant. So there's a lot of techniques to communication, and the symbolic side of people's lives never uh, is gone. I mean, Willem de Kooning, the great New York abstract expressionist and artist, he was diagnosed at Cornell with probable Alzheimer's, and he had it for 14 years. For 13 and a half years, he painted in his studio in Greenwich Village. He had a, a liaison with him, and he would just sporadically rise up and dip his brush in that acrylic and go up to the uh, easel, and he would paint. And there was a posthumous exhibit of his work, and some of the reviewers said, oh, it was terrible. He was just a shell of himself. But the one I liked said, wait a minute. This is the guy who had Alzheimer's disease, and for 13 and a half out of 14 years, he knew exactly who he was. He knew he was an artist. He kept drawing, and he knew that somehow who he was was connected with the symbol of that brush and that paint. So he wasn't gone. He was compromised a bit, but he was not gone. I remember watching a movie one day, and the main character's mother was battling Alzheimer's. She she was suffering from Alzheimer's, and the character had told another person within the story that for years he tried to pull his mother back into his world of rational thought, always correcting her mistakes and trying to make her fit in, in the world that he was living in. But he finally decided to join her world and he started to play along with whatever she said. And he said life got so much easier. Do you think that's a good approach? It is, except in the very, very early phases of a progressive dementia when somebody can still in fact be reminded uh, uh, of the realities around them and it can be a positive experience for them and is consistent with their dignity however as they become more deeply forgetful all you want to do is let them define subjectively the world that they live in and you can enter into that world oliver sachs great neurologist from Columbia, wrote a wonderful play called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Well, if she mis... If, if, if he... If he mis well, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, just just live with it. Uh, be a hat, and don't worry much. Don't get anxious about it. Yeah, so correcting is inappropriate uh, for the most part, uh, but especially after you get to a certain stage where I like to say where people begin to forget that they forget. And then they have a relatively benign um, adjustment uh, to, uh, to this condition. And reminding them can actually be very troubling and very distressful. Doctor, for someone who may not know a whole lot about Alzheimer's, can you take us through the progression in generalities? I know each person is different, but yeah. how long a process is it? How quickly does it move along? Well, as doctors like to say, you've seen one case, you've seen one case. First of all, quick. 
definition. Dementia, as medicine uses it, is a decline from a former mental state, but it can be caused by a lot of different diseases. So, Joan, for example, 100 years ago, what was the main cause of dementia? Well, it was neurosyphilis. People didn't live so old. We didn't have antibiotics, and there was a lot of syphilis around. And um, so dementia can be secondary to Parkinson's disease. Uh, people talk about concussions or um, uh, various traumatic events uh, to the head, uh, which can cause uh, dementia as well. Uh, there are many forms. Alzheimer's probably causes about 50% of cases of dementia. And, and what's unique about Alzheimer's is that it's progressive. Um, a lot of the other dementias, like, for example, stroke-related dementia, they're stable over time, more or less. But the Alzheimer's does tend to get progressively worse. Now, you're asking, okay, so uh, how quickly does it get worse? It depends on the case. And I think there's a wonderful woman in Colombia named uh, Gayatri Devi uh, who tells us that, in fact, the progression is not just biologically determined, like, you know, so by genetics or something. Actually, how we interact with people, uh, how we connect with them, whether we let them feel comfortable and respected, that kind of interaction will actually affect the course of the of the of the disease itself because of what we call neuroplasticity, that emotion and and environment affect the brain itself, and even epigenetics, that genetic expression is affected by various um, interactions, and that means that um, the more we can treat a person with kindness and gentleness and respect them and go out of our way to notice those hints of continuing self-identity, the less apoplectic we get, the more we can adjust to the fact that, okay, they don't remember my name. My grandmother didn't remember my name when she had probable Alzheimer's years ago. But it doesn't matter that much, even though you might think it matters. It really doesn't. So let them be who they are. Be peaceful. Create a tranquil environment. Use music and art and poetry. I say to every caregiver, you should sing to your loved one because they remember those songs that they identify with deeply over the course of their lives. And it's incredible. A lot of the times they'll chime in and you'll be completely shocked by it. But mm -hmm. it's the truth. And, and so this is what we need to do is we need to we need to create the right environment and then we can slow this thing down. Well, you were bit. just talking anyway. about neuroplasticity and epigenetics. So is there any science that's showing the potential there to reverse it or even prevent it? <laughs> oh, those are tough questions. There is a word that gets used in the neuro literature these days, rementia, as opposed to dementia. And I think that's when people come back into themselves. There's an Alzheimer's choir in New York called, okay, are you ready for this? The Unforgettables. And yeah. that started at NYU. And, you know, these are caregivers and their loved ones, and they, you know, they may not have communicated much for quite a while, and the person who's affected may just have that chin down on, 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 on and, and, and not be talking. But when they start working uh, in a choir uh, on a song that they both identify uh, with deeply from years ago, then they come together, they connect. Uh, oftentimes there's more communication that goes on. And so there is, in a sense, rementia. I saw it at the Brooklyn Memory Disorders Center where there were about 40 people who were quite severely forgetful um, in a big room in chairs uh, around a circle, and you had a two or three Alzheimer's poets in the middle of the room in, in a very musical and engaging way uh, reciting Robert Frost's The Road Less Traveled. And believe it or not, these 40 people there who were not conversant, I would say that at least 30 of them were, come, were chiming in for a line or even a whole verse or even the whole poem. And so then after that, they might be conversant for a few minutes uh, with their caregivers, and it was quite a miraculous thing to see. Then they'll fade back, but it's so meaningful, Joan, for the caregivers because they realize, you know, we're not we're not wasting our time. We're caring for our loved one, and they're still there. We may not be able to see it all the time or feel it, but they're there. 
and the music and the poetry and bring it out. So you were just talking about caregivers. What are some of the greatest challenges that they face when trying to help a loved one through this journey? Well, there are a lot of different challenges. Um, you know, it, it is it is true that we have so many medical ethical dilemmas around dementia. Um, at what point uh, is it appropriate to, to place a loved one in a nursing home? Uh, that's something that caregivers really do struggle with because oftentimes their loved one extracted a promise from them, don't ever put me in a nursing home. But there comes a time when, you know, because it's so difficult uh, to manage in complicated cases, there comes a time when professional help is really needed and a nursing home place that makes a big, a big uh, a lot of sense. Now, what I say to caregivers is that doesn't mean you're abandoning your loved one. It just means that you're putting them in a good situation and you're going to visit at least two or three times a week and maybe assist with oral feeding. You'll be there to talk with them. You, you know, reading, reading poetry to your loved one is very helpful. Just as I said, singing is helpful. Um, you can come in with various meaningful uh, symbols and artifacts uh, that can connect uh, them, uh, quite well to, to, uh, to, to the love that they've known over their lives. So, yeah, I mean, um, uh, placing in a nursing home is, is a big deal. And then there are all these other things. You know, for example, if this con- you know, continues to progress, which it eventually will, but it's just hard to predict how, how quickly, uh, do you still want to treat people for uh, other conditions? Like, for example, um, diabetes. You know, do you still want to be taking someone who's deeply forgetful and sticking them with a needle for insulin uh, when, in fact, um, they have no insight anymore into what that's for. So they may interpret it subjectively as something like an assault. What about someone who's got a heart problem uh, and is being supported by all kinds of uh, those amazing new heart technologies? Um, what about that? Uh, does someone really, uh, other than for palliative reasons, uh, want to have surgery for uh, tumor removal. Uh, what about an individual uh, who breaks a hip and uh, really can be reasonably well off, still in a nursing home or still at home, just tended to, not ambulating, uh, but that's relatively mild and comfortable uh, with, with the right sorts of medications. You bring them into the hospital, and um, lo and behold, uh, it's a new environment. They lose all their sense of connection, and they decline even further cognitively, and so they'll never really be the same. These are all big dilemmas, and so the ethics of, of, of this, of, of, of treatment interventions, um, you know, during COVID, there was a patient I had met who had uh, dementia secondary to Parkinson's disease, uh, and she was up in an intensive care unit. She was on a breathing mask, which was non-invasive, which allowed her to get along pretty well. Uh, she could communicate with her loved ones who weren't allowed up there because of the contagion, but she could communicate with them uh, somewhat on um, on phone and on uh, on iPad. Um, and then the question came up, well, uh, do you really want to put her on a ventilator? And the, the adult children said, yes, yes, because that's what's best treatment. And I suggested, I, I, you know, look, it's your decision. But I think maybe the more compassionate thing to do is leave your mom uh, on a non-invasive feeding mask and let her interact with you more. Because as soon as you put her on that vent, you know, um, she's going to be uh, intubated. Uh, she'll uh, probably be sedated. She will be sedated. And the likelihood of someone 85 years old ever coming back from that is about one in 100. So, so the overuse of technology is a big issue, and medical students who are training and go into the intensive care units, sometimes they'll see three or four or half a dozen individuals who are very, very deeply forgetful and in really end-stage dementia. They belong in the hospices where they belong. They don't belong in the hospital. Do you think this is something that we should consider for ourselves and, and add into our directives, that are, you know, the legal documents that we create? Yeah, I think so. You know, it's it's it, with, with this particular condition, it's you know the best document, uh, Joan, is 
not so much a living will, but it's called a durable power of attorney for health care. And it allows you as an affected individual to designate a loved one, you know, your caregiver, your primary caregiver typically, as the decision maker. So they have uh, all the rights to make decisions. Now, you can put in a few comments. Do not want artificial nutrition and hydration, for example. I think that's probably a pretty good idea because there's no advantage to feeding pigs and artificial nutrition and hydration. In fact, if you look at the studies, people do better, people with uh, dementia, um, do better with assisted oral feeding. I did that with my grandmother a bit when I was much younger, you know, apple for apple bran and, and, and so forth. And, and uh, you know, she couldn't swallow too well, so she needed help. And there was a lot that went on between us in those moments of assistance. You know, she would brighten up. I could look into her eyes. I could see that she was still there. And then again, surprisingly, from time to time, she might call me Stevie. And then I really knew she was still there. And that was very, very impressive to me. So um, I don't, you know, artificial nutrition and hydration feeding pigs, they're not good for people with end-stage Alzheimer's. Uh, they actually don't even uh, extend their lives. They live longer with assisted oral feeding. Uh, with the pegs, they get uh, aspiration pneumonia, uh, and they're also pulling out the pegs from their tummies because uh, they see that few inches of rubber sticking out from their belly button. And then they get tied down, and they're uh, sitting there in their, uh, in their uh, urine and so forth, and they get skin infections, which can be lethal. So in general, it's a lot better off to have assisted oral feeding and not to go with a lot of late-life technology. So hospice. Just do hospice. Use good palliative care. These people do have pain, just like anybody can have pain. It's not due to the dementia, but it's because they have osteoporosis or they have some other uh, arthritic condition or whatever it might be. So they need to be cared for uh, palliatively with pain medications, but they don't need anything else. Are cases of Alzheimer's on the rise? How prevalent is this problem? Aha. Uh-huh. Good question. Actually, if you look back, uh, everybody thinks there's more and more and more of this going on. Actually, not so. We're becoming more aware of it. Um, However, over the last 15 to 20 years, there's actually been a relative decline per capita in the number of older adults with probable Alzheimer's disease. And people attribute that to a whole lot of things. Number one, you know, we're being a little more careful about healthy aging. Um, you know, people are eating more carefully. They're aware of uh, what they can do to prevent uh, major heart disease and so forth, et cetera. So people are trying to be more healthy. They're getting more ambulation. They're walking more. Um, uh, it, it's, a, it's a good thing. And this healthy aging, and you talked about prevention before, uh, is preventive. In fact, um, if I was going to just, you know, I'm being somewhat tongue-in-cheek here, if I was going to recommend anything to anybody, it would be uh, walk half an hour a day because we do, we have studies showing that walking is very helpful for circulation in the brain. And uh, a lot of these uh, cases involve poor circulation or small, very small stroke events in the white matter of the brain. And so walking is good. Uh, it's good for your whole vascular system but it's especially good for your brain, and that can be helpful. Um, the other thing is watch your diet. Um, there are people at Columbia, I won't, go, I won't name names, but good people who have studied all the different um, ethnic populations across Manhattan, and what they have found out is that something like a Mediterranean diet seems to be preventive too. That just doesn't mean necessarily a Greek diet, but it means leafy vegetables, uh, vegetables that grow above the, uh, the surface of the ground, not low. Uh, berries are great. Blueberries, blackberries, strawberries, tomatoes are very good. Uh, uh, keep keep a, keep control over carbohydrates and sugars, because when you do that, uh, you don't have to have a keto diet, but your but your metabolism changes, and that blood sugar uh, that your brain uses uh, moves away from the normal uh, sort of uh, 
uh, carbohydrate, sugary stuff is something that's, uh, that's much better for your brain health. I won't go into details. Uh, and I suggest also, uh, you know, uh, pro-social activity, interacting with people, um, using your mind in various ways, being creative. Um, it's all good. So don't believe um, that this is inevitable and there's nothing you can do about it. Now, there is no drug. None of the existing drugs, which are not terribly useful anyway, uh, none of the existing drugs seem to prevent or delay the onset of Alzheimer's disease. So it all comes down to how we live our lives, and that can really make a difference. The book is Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. If you'd like to get more information about Dr. Post and his work, you can visit stephengpost.com. That's Stephen with a P-H, stephengpost.com. Dr. Post, thank you so much for joining us. It's a really great reminder to pay attention to our brain health as much as every other part of our body. So thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. And to respect people regardless of their state of memory. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. If you're a business owner and you're not using video to market your company, you're losing customers and revenue, guaranteed. No matter whether you're a one-person shop or your revenue's in the seven figures, video is guaranteed to improve your fortunes. Hi, I'm Ed Lamoureux, owner of Lamore Strategy Group and Lamore Life Productions, a marketing consultancy and video production company. The most common two things I hear about why businesses aren't using video marketing is, one, I don't know how to do video marketing, and two, I don't feel comfortable on camera. Well, to both of those objections, I say this. Video shouldn't be scary. Failure should be scary. Numbers don't lie. According to HubSpot, video is the number one form of media used in content strategy. And according to WiseOwl, 84% of people say that they've been convinced to buy a product or service by watching a company's video. So how can you ride the wave to your own success? As Nike says, just do it. Practice, delete, and repeat until it looks good and feels right. And don't forget that you should tell stories if you want to get engagement. No one wants to watch ads. Well, perhaps with the exception of advertising agencies who make their living off them. But learn how to tell a story, and you'll soon be watching the clicks and views multiply exponentially along with your revenue. If you need help with your video needs, give me a call or visit my website at lamorestrategies.com. That's L-A-M-O-U-R strategies.com. This is Ed Lamoureux from Lamore Strategy Group and Lamore Life Productions, where our favorite story to tell is yours. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. This is a St. Jude moment. Braxton was diagnosed with chloride plexus carcinoma, which is a brain tumor. We have an amazing team that fights for the best outcome for Braxton. Being part of the research makes us feel like we're doing our take. So if we can put our little piece of the puzzle in it, I would do it over and over again. Because 
I don't want another family to have to go through what we're going through. Seeing the research team keep going all night makes me relieved. I was up at 2 o'clock in the morning and I saw a meeting going on. And I was like, oh my god, no one sleeps here? <laughs> Which is fantastic because they are literally trying to find a cure 24 hours a day. They're not willing to give up. Finding cures, saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. This is Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Spending time alone can have benefits, but long-term isolation may be detrimental to our emotional and physical health. According to today's guest, Dr. Susan Noonan, we all need social interaction and meaningful relationships in order to be well and thrive. Dr. Noonan joins us to talk about the impacts of social isolation and how we can reconnect. Dr. Noonan is a physician and mental health and wellness coach. Her new book is Reconnecting After Isolation, Coping with Anxiety, Depression, Grief, PTSD, and More. Welcome, Dr. Noonan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Doctor, let's begin by talking about social isolation. What does it look like when someone socially isolates? Well, that's a really great question. Sometimes we go through life and we're not kind of aware of what's happening around us. But social isolation is really the experience of feeling alone. And it um, is the kind of thing that can happen even in a crowd. Um, We might not be engaging with other people and not interested in speaking or engaging with other people. We might feel lonely. Um, We might have some various emotional and physical symptoms that accompany that. Um, Now, all alone time is not harmful. Spending some time alone each day can be beneficial. Solitude has a purpose and might be soothing and restorative. It provides a sense of contentment. However, if it's something that's involuntary, um, such as what happens during a pandemic or some medical event where you're isolated for a bit, um, then that becomes a problem. Doctor, what would cause a person to want to isolate? Someone who wants to isolate is more than likely someone who has some emotional um, problems in the background. They might have depression or some social phobias or anxiety that prevents them from, from engaging in the world and interacting with other people. They might have some fears. Um, It could also be um, a fear related to the COVID pandemic, for example, um, or other infectious disease pandemics, where there might be fear and uncertainty of the unknown, of contracting a virus, um, things like that. Well, you were talking about fear, and then you mentioned the pandemic. You know, coming out of it, is it almost like a PTSD? Are there triggers that we need to be aware of? Well, some people do experience PTSD after something like the pandemic. Um, Those are people who might have been traumatized during um, the experience, either essential frontline workers, for example, um, who or others who just felt it as a threat to their well-being, whether it was a perceived or real threat. And they might experience symptoms such as reliving the event with memories and nightmares and flashbacks, or and they avoid thinking about it or situations or events that bring it to mind and have a lot of negative feelings and maybe feel keyed up. Um, so that is PTSD. But coming out of the pandemic, people can also have some anxiety around reengaging in the world, something we call re-entry um, anxiety. And that's a, a real problem that is affecting a number of people. So if we don't reenter society and we stay isolated for too long, what are some of the things that can happen to us? That's a great question. Um, Oftentimes, 
um, will become more introverted and isolated, and it changes actually all areas of our daily life, the way we do things in our home life, social life, or work life, or school, um, limiting our recreation. Um, it can also impact our sleep. Um, we may not exercise as much or have a routine and structure to our days um, and maybe eat differently, grazing all day instead of eating more healthy foods. It can have a negative impact on our mental health and our ability to manage it. Um, there can be um, depression, anxiety, suicidal issues, um, and then physical problems like heart disease or stroke or high blood pressure problems, cholesterol and immune function. A lot of tension interpersonally with stress, disagreements at home, sometimes even domestic violence and child abuse. And this can um, affect people who have an existing mental illness or not. It can also affect children um, who are spending time away from their friends or classmates and teachers and communities. They become sad and irritable and hostile. Uh, maybe the academics suffer. This maturation and social development can also be slowed down. Doctor, it seems like a vicious cycle. Isolation causes depression, and depression causes isolation. Yes, that's great, great insight. That is a, a vicious cycle. So there are some things that we can do. However, they may not be easy to do for many people. And there are things such as um, recognizing what is going on in your life. Um, that the world might be different now, and there might be different rules and expectations. Um, you have to decide um, what limits or boundaries you and your family want to to adopt. Um, the most important thing, though, is to try to um, accept the reality of whatever situation you're in and try to adapt to these new circumstances but still continue with things that provide meaning and purpose to you. So you set out small goals um, to engage with friends and family and coworkers that are simple and very specific and realistically attainable. Um, you might learn to have to learn to say no when necessary. Coping strategies are very important to use. That could be problem-solving tactics, physical exercise, humor, hobbies, pets, um, Remember to incorporate relaxation. Um, a lot of people like music and mindfulness and self-soothing techniques. But you have to take care of yourself, including regular sleep, a healthy diet, regular exercise, engaging with social contacts, both at school and work. You want to move more and sit less and have a routine and structure to your day instead of endless hours of open alone time. You know, so many of us, we joke, especially now that it gets darker earlier. We, you know, we have our pajamas on at five o'clock and we're settled in with Netflix. And, and it's very easy to fall into that type of a routine. So how mm -hmm. can we tell when it's, you know, not comfortable isolation and it's starting to become more of a problem? What would be a warning sign? Well, life is a lot of, it's full of lots of ups and downs and stresses. And most of the time we can manage them on their own, uh, on our own. Uh, sometimes we need the help or support of families. But you want to be alert to any changes from your usual self, your usual baseline, that persist more than a couple of weeks. And they could be things like feeling more irritable or angry, avoiding things, um, having variations in your daily routines, um, any symptoms that might interfere with your daily functioning, your ability to get through what you need to every day. So there can be symptoms of depression, and there's a number of them. They can all be found on, online, but it, it basically is a, you know, a sad or depressed mood, loss of interest or pleasure in most activities, changes in sleep and weight and, and um, excuse me, appetite, um, problems thinking, concentrating, maybe thinking that one is worthless or hopeless, and, and at the worst, thoughts of death or suicide. You could have PTSD. Um, that's kind of an anxiety, but a disabling type that occurs after exposure to a real or perceived threat. And it causes distress and impairs functioning. And we talked a little bit about that. Um, you could also have a severe anxiety, which is a feeling of excessive worry and apprehension and nervousness 
about things that's really out of proportion to the feared event. Um, and if any of these things persist or start to interfere with life and your ability to function at work or school or socially, then it's time to pay attention and get professional help. Start with your primary care physician or ideally a mental health specialist who's trained to recognize and treat psychological and emotional problems. Doctor, if a friend or loved one sees someone that they care about exhibiting any of the things you just described, what's a good way to open up the communication channel? How how can we approach the subject? Good question, because sometimes people are quite sensitized to it, or they might be in denial to others. They don't want to admit that they're actually experiencing that. So caregivers or family or friends um, first just should be supportive and encouraging and doing it in a non-judgmental way. Just being able to open up and say, hey, I'm a little concerned about you. You don't seem to be as energetic or as interested in things as you used to be. Is something going on? You want to be a good role model by following a healthy lifestyle yourself and, and demonstrating how to be socially active and encourage the use of healthy life choices in sleep or diet or exercise. Um, you can, you can ha- try to help the person identify, identify what people and activities they might want to reach out to, um, making a few suggestions as appropriate, but starting with what the person used to like to do and just build on that. And sometimes a, a family friend, a family or friend can um, try to create opportunities for um, a social interaction that the person can engage in. The book is Reconnecting After Isolation, Coping with Anxiety, Depression, Grief, PTSD, and More. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Noonan and her work, you can visit SusanNoonanMD.com. Doctor, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? Well, my favorite mantra is action precedes motivation. And I think that works pretty well in this kind of situation. It's easy to sit back and let things just be. Sometimes you need to put your foot forward, even though you might not feel like doing it. And eventually, the interest and the desire will follow. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Joan. My pleasure as well. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you toss and turn in bed and feel like you will never fall asleep? Do you wake up in the middle of the night and can't go back to sleep? If this sounds like you, then hypnosis may be the answer for a good night's sleep. Hi, I'm Mary Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner at Metro Hypnosis Center. If you're having trouble sleeping, first, you want to create a different approach to sleep. Start with the thoughts that you currently think about sleep. Instead of thinking I won't fall asleep or I won't stay asleep, take a moment to rephrase those statements. I easily fall asleep at night. I can stay asleep for the whole night and wake up refreshed. Next, relax the mind before you go to bed. A lot of times it's the thoughts or worrying that keep us up at night. Keep a night journal by your bed and write away the worries or thoughts of the day. When you close the journal, let that be the signal to start relaxing the mind. Do some deep breathing and visualize the body being relaxed. Visualize the thoughts leaving the mind. Visualize yourself sleeping through the night. These steps can be used if you wake up in the middle of the night as well. See this happening night after night, easily falling asleep and staying asleep. For more information how hypnosis can help you, go to my website, metrohypnosiscenter.com. When you're having a conversation in relationship and it's somewhat controversial, you probably want to be heard and be right. Quite often that's what we want. 
and say we're maybe a little defensive, but is that right? Or do we want a result? The result being we'd like to get along. Hi, I'm Lindsay Levinson, Quality for Life Coaching. And they are two different things, getting along versus being heard and being right. See, because being heard and right is our defense, and that connects to our ego. But ego's not really going to get you that far. If you want a result, then you're going to want to work with humility and truth. So if you've got a difference of opinion, I mean, for me, I'll quickly look for a reason to say I'm sorry. And it has to be true. If I don't know what I've done yet, then I will say, I'm sorry you're hurting. I've done something wrong here because you're hurting. But let's talk further so we can figure this out. And you don't want to talk at someone by saying you this and you that because people just shut their ears. You want to use words like we and use words like experience. I'm having this experience. I know your experience is different. There isn't a right or wrong. There's just different experiences going on here. So we just need to talk it through and land somewhere that feels really good for both of us. So you want to do a lot of that non-heated conversation so that you can both feel good, but nobody is charging at another person. It's not being heard and right. It's just working toward the positive result. Lindsay Levinson, qualityforlifecoaching.com. Look me up. I'd love to talk to you, help you in any way I might be able to. to your health. Joining me today is Dr. Rojini Raj, a board-certified gastroenterologist and television personality. Dr. Raj is here today to discuss digestive discomfort. Welcome, Dr. Raj. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. So, Doctor, digestive discomfort can be the result of more than just overeating. It may be caused by a condition called EPI, or exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. Tell us about EPI. Sure. So EPI stands for exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, as you just said, and that's a condition where your pancreas is not producing enough digestive enzymes to digest your food properly. So what you may experience in that case are symptoms such as abdominal pain, bloating, diarrhea, or unexplained weight loss. And the issue is many of these symptoms are also symptoms that are similar to other GI conditions. So it's really important to speak to your doctor if you're experiencing these symptoms frequently or on a recurring basis to make sure you get the proper diagnosis and ultimately the proper treatment. And you can certainly learn more about these symptoms at identifyepi.com. Doctor, who is at greatest risk for having this? And, and how do we know when it really is more than just overeating? I mean, you know what our diets are like today. So how can we tell the difference? Sure. Well, in terms of EPI, it has been associated with certain conditions like cystic fibrosis, chronic pancreatitis, which is a chronic inflammation of the pancreas, or even people who've had some type of pancreatic surgery can develop this condition. Uh, but in terms of how do you tell if it's just an occasional indigestion or something that needs to be investigated, it's really about listening to your body, taking, paying attention to the frequency of the symptoms. So if it's just once in a while, when you know you've kind of really overindulged, then that's probably something that happens to all of us occasionally. But if it's happening frequently, if it's recurring, if it's something that's affecting your life or your ability to enjoy your life, then it's certainly time to talk to your doctor and get to the bottom of the condition and make sure you know what it is so you can treat it appropriately. Can EPI be dangerous if left undiagnosed? Well, it certainly can affect your ability to absorb the nutrients that you need. It can lead to vitamin deficiencies. Um, the weight loss as well it can be concerning. And it can be associated with some other very serious underlying conditions. We talked about cystic fibrosis and chronic pancreatitis. So it's certainly not something that you want to leave undiagnosed. Um, you want to get to the bottom of it and treat it. And where can our listeners go to get more information? IdentifyEPI.com has a lot more information about the condition and the symptoms associated with it. Dr. Raj, thank you so much for being here with us and for bringing this condition to our attention. Again, IdentifyEPI.com is a wonderful source for more resources. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Do you allow fear to stop you dead in your tracks whenever you think about trying something new? Does that voice in your head conjure up a list of reasons to be inactive while you shouldn't try to accomplish a goal? Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. It's time to face your fears and step out of your comfort zone. For most of my life, I was that person, too afraid to take a chance, self-sabotaging myself at every turn. I had a reason for every roadblock that I built. I allowed fear to govern my life. It took a major life upheaval and a lot of soul searching to get me to change my ways. And when I did, 
I realized that I hadn't really lived. I played it safe and simply survived. Over the course of the past decade, I have had the opportunity to interview people that have inspired and challenged me to step outside of the comfort zone I called life. I met warriors who have overcome tremendous challenges and displayed courage that most can only imagine. They changed my way of thinking. Some of these people were born without arms and legs or feet or hands. Others have lost their vision or the ability to walk, and others have survived horrific trauma and now live their life in service to others. Every one of these people had every right to live in fear as they faced unfathomable challenges, but they all chose to confront their limitations and achieve what many would consider to be impossible. They understood that fear is nothing more than a mindset, a perception, false evidence appearing real. They taught me that each time we face our fears, we gain strength, courage, and confidence in the doing. So the next time you're faced with an overwhelming challenge, an opportunity to try something new, or the chance to step out of your comfort zone, how do you push fear aside and take action? First, evaluate the driving force behind your fear. Is it a real consideration or something that you've created in your mind? Then make a list of your concerns and attack them one by one. Ask yourself, what is the worst thing that can happen? And by the way, it usually doesn't. Then develop a plan of action. What is your goal and how will you achieve it? Empower yourself with knowledge. And finally, muster up the courage to take a chance. The best plans are meaningless without action. As the explorer Christopher Columbus said, you can never cross the ocean until you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. Remember, it isn't the end result that matters. It's the journey. And you just may enjoy the ride. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more inspiring tips, visit joanherman.com. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.